the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through 1 John. It's not that, by the way, God goes around as an angry God, but it is simply a statement that where there is sin, sin must be punished. And thus our sin will naturally incur the wrath of God. Because if God were truly righteous and just and holy, and he looked the other way when we sinned, he wouldn't be righteous, just, and holy. So a righteous, just, and holy God has to mete out the punishment consistent with the crime. You might have heard the argument about how a loving God could punish someone the way he does. But oftentimes, the people making that argument forget a really important detail. We deserve the punishment in the first place. It's because God is so loving that we're given an opportunity to avoid that judgment that we've earned for ourselves. In today's message, Pastor Gary challenges that argument by asking if God would still be just and righteous if he looked the other way for specific people. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of 1 John chapter 2 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. John the Apostle is the one that the Lord uses, that the Holy Spirit inspires to pen this letter. And he tells us, he helps those like me who just need something plainly said. All right, I can't read between the lines. Just tell me plainly. Anybody else like that? Okay, good. So John, knowing people like me and you who raised your hands, he tells us specifically four purposes for his writing of this letter. He tells us in chapter 1, verse 4, to make our joy full or complete. He tells us in chapter 2, 1, to warn us about habitual sin. Another purpose is in chapter 2, 26, to refute false teachers. And then finally in chapter 5, verse 13, he says he writes this letter to assure us of our salvation. Now that's an important point because it's easy to read this letter And think to yourself, if you're a Christian, I'm not sure I'm even saved. Because some of the things he says here are so challenging that he holds this bar up really high that it's easy to look at these things that he says here, and we'll see in a moment when we get here to chapter 2, that you can even question, man, if if this is what a Christian looks like, I'm, I'm not sure I am one. Well, he wants to assure us, listen, I write this to actually assure you of your salvation. So it's important for us to read it in light of that. But there was a problem 
we mentioned a couple weeks ago that plagued the early church, and it was called Gnosticism. It was a heresy that started basically in the first century. It continued primarily into the second and third centuries, and it was basically a false doctrine, a heresy that taught that all physical matter is evil, thus the Gnostics did not believe that Jesus appeared in physical form. They thought it was just a phantom uh, body, but he was actually only spirit. Uh, and, And then they also taught that since it's only the spirit that matters and the spirit can't sin, all issues related to, you know, the flesh... And, and since as Christians, it's all about, they would say, it's, it's only about the spirit, not about the flesh. Therefore, you can pretty much do whatever you want in your flesh because it doesn't matter. And so with that backdrop, John comes along and he has to refute uh, different things related to Gnosticism. And we got through two of them last week. One was they taught that we can have fellowship, that, you know, as Christians, believing Gnosticism in the first century, that we can have fellowship with God regardless of our actions. Again, it goes back to that idea that it's only the spirit that matters, the flesh doesn't really matter, so go ahead and do whatever you want with your body, and, and uh, you can still have fellowship God, with God regardless. And John comes along and he goes, no, not, not exactly. And, and then also he talks in chapter 1, where we left off at verses 8 through 10, uh, that that they were teaching, we're, we're not even sinners. We're not even capable of sinning because, you know, it's all about the spirit now. We've got saved. And, and, he, and he wraps it up at the end of chapter 1 and verse 9. And he goes, no, listen, we, we all sin, but here's the good news. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he says, don't deceive yourselves into thinking that you are sinless at this point. You know, one day when we get to be with the Lord and we no longer have this body of flesh, we will be sinless. But for the moment, we still have to wrestle with our, our body of flesh and the desires of our fleshly nature, which are constantly in conflict with our spirit. Our spirit wants to please God. Our flesh wants to please ourselves. And, and there's that constant battle. But in his day, he was having to refute this idea that, you know, it's all about the spirit. It doesn't really matter what I do with my body, so I can't really sin anyhow. And he goes, no, yes, you can, and yes, we do, and we struggle with sin. But the good news is we can continually be right with God if we have a short account with him. That is to say, if we are regularly confessing our sins, he is just, and he will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. David would say in Psalm 51.5, surely I was sinful at birth. From the time that I was conceived in my mother's womb. So we are all sinners, and thus we will still sin. But as he moves into chapter 2 here, what he's going to tell us is that the Christian life is not about being sinless, but it is about sinning less. Okay? Everybody understand that? The Christian life is not about being sinless, but... The goal and the desire of every Christian's heart should be to sin less. In chapter 2, verse 1, John starts out this chapter by addressing his readers as my little children. By the way, that is a phrase that he will use nine times in this little epistle. And he writes in an affectionate way like that because he is the oldest surviving of the original apostles. It is believed that John was the youngest of the 12 apostles whom the Lord selected and that he was in his late teens or early 20s 
when he was first following the Lord. Now this is 85 to 90 AD when he's writing this. So it is believed that John is somewhere around the age of 80. And so, you know, when you get to be about 80, everybody in relation to you is a a little child. You know what I'm saying to you? And so kind of in this paternal, loving way, as an older man now, uh, he refers to his readers nine times here as my little children, uh, mutechnia in the Greek. And he says, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Okay, now, again, this is what we're referring to a moment ago. It's not that we will be sinless. He's saying, I I want you to deal with sin in your life as Christians to be vigilant and intentional about sin. So he says, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. In other words, habitual sin. Again, we're all, you know, we're all flesh. We will fail from time to time. That's not a license for liberty in, in sinfulness. That is just simply a statement of reality that until we shed this body of flesh, there will be times that we will stumble and fall. But the goal should be that we always want to please our Father, and so that the older we get in Christ, the more we should be sinning less. So he says, I I write these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, okay, so he's not denying the fact, but he says, if anyone sins, here's good news, we have an advocate. Circle that word, advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, And who is our advocate? Well, he tells us, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, the word advocate there is literally a term that that means defense lawyer. An advocate is one who defends you in in a court of law. And actually, this was an ancient term. Uh, Demosthenes, uh, the ancient uh, Greek orator and statesman in the 4th century B.C., in his ancient literature, Demosthenes would write how this was a common term that was used among the Greeks, advocates, to describe those who would voluntarily step forward in a court of law to defend someone who was accused and appeal to a judge to rule in the favor of the accused. So this is an ancient term, and John's just using this in his own culture, but you know, even in our day, we understand what an advocate is. And John is saying to us that our true advocate is Jesus Christ. He's the one that comes to our defense, that stands before a righteous God who is a righteous judge, and he appeals to the judge on our behalf that the judge might have mercy on us as the accused. I read in this one commentary, I thought this was kind of well said, so I'm just going to read it to you. This kind of describes the idea of an advocate. It is as if we stand as the accused in the heavenly court before our righteous judge, God the Father. Our advocate, Jesus, stands up to answer the charges. Quote, he or she is completely guilty, your honor. In fact, he has done worse than what he is accused of and now makes full and complete confession before you. The gavel slams and the judge asks, What should his sentence be? Our advocate answers, his sentence shall be death. He deserves the full wrath of this righteous court. All along, our accuser, Satan, is having great fun at all this. We are guilty. We admit our guilt. We see our punishment. But then, our advocate asks to approach the bench. As he draws close to the judge, he simply says, 
Dad, this one belongs to me. I paid this price. I took the wrath and punishment from this court that he deserves. The gavel sounds again, and the judge cries out, guilty as charged, penalty satisfied. That's good, because that describes what Christ has done for us. You see, in earthly terms, an advocate, a defense attorney, tries to defend his or her client by making the case that he or she is innocent. But in the heavenly court, Jesus already acknowledges our guilt because we are guilty before the righteous judge. He doesn't try to defend our innocence. He acknowledges our guilt, but then he appeals to the court on our behalf. That's our advocate. That's Jesus who stands in our defense. Jesus, the righteous. Verse 2, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now, in your Bibles there, you can circle the word propitiation. It's another fancy $3 word. Uh, If you have an NIV version, it just simply says atonement. In ancient times, religious pagan traditions, uh, even some religious traditions today, uh, had as the idea propitiation was the offering of some kind of a gift or sacrifice to appease an angry God, small g. It's just in the context of ancient pagan religious tradition. That's what propitiation was. It was the idea, the concept, that one must offer some kind of a sacrifice or a gift to appease an angry God. In the New Testament, though, Propitiation is the idea that we can't do anything to satisfy the wrath of God. Now, it's not that, by the way, God goes around as an angry God, but it is simply a statement that where there is sin, sin must be punished. And thus, our sin will naturally incur the wrath of God. Because if God were truly righteous and just and holy, and he looked the other way when we sinned, he wouldn't be righteous, just, and holy. A righteous, just, and holy God has to mete out the punishment consistent with the crime. If God did not, then he would not truly be just and righteous. So his wrath must be satisfied because our sin deserves it. So propitiation is the idea that we can't do anything to offer enough gifts to appease the wrath of God. So what God did on our behalf was to send his son, Jesus. This is what John is writing here. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is the one who offers his life. He becomes the sacrifice. He becomes what we cannot offer, who has offered himself on our behalf so that he can satisfy the wrath of God and reconcile us to God at the same time. That's the idea behind propitiation. It is a satisfaction of the wrath of God and it is a reconciliation of two parties. That's what the word means. Satisfaction of the wrath of God and a reconciliation of two parties. We needed to be reconciled to God. The relationship with God was broken in the Garden of Eden. The the relationship with God was reconciled at the cross. And by faith, we put our trust in Jesus, who is our propitiation. He's our atoning sacrifice. He pays the price. He satisfies and appeases the wrath of God, reconciles us to God at the same time. And John adds there, and not for us only, but also for the whole world. 
That is to say that Jesus did not die exclusively for only believers. He died for anyone who would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. That the invitation is open to all. Jesus died for the whole world. God so loved the world. God didn't just so love a select few. God so loved the world. Now, how many among the world will respond to his love? Well, that's up to an individual and that's up to God, but this is an invitation to all who might believe. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, not just for a small select group of people. He is our propitiation. He is our atoning sacrifice. Verse 3, now by this uh, we know that we know him if we keep his commands. He who says, verse 4, now notice here's going to be another uh, claim that John is going to refute here, and it often begins with that phrase, he who says, he who says, uh, or if, back up in verse uh, 8, if we say, uh, verse 10, if we say, and now uh, uh, down here in chapter 2, verse 4, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word... God's word, scripture, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this, we know that we are in him. So it's number three on our list here. He refutes this claim that we can know God without having to do what he says. And John's like, no, if you really know God, you're going to obey God. If you really love God, you're going to do what he says. Uh, Jesus said the very same thing in John 14, verse 15. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. The love of God is inextricably linked to obeying God. We cannot say we love God and then disobey him. That is, that's hypocrisy. It's inconsistent. Again, one of the things that John is trying to reinforce here among Christians is belief must match behavior. And if it doesn't, then there's an inconsistency there. There's hypocrisy of some kind. If you say that you believe God, if you say that you love Jesus, if you say that you're a follower of Christ, then you're going to do what he says. Again, from time to time, we will stumble, but then confess your sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins, cleanse you from all unrighteousness, that you might be in right relationship with him. It's not denying the sinful propensity of the human heart, but it is to say that if we really love God, we're going to do all we can to always obey him. John will write further, if you just jump over to chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5, he writes something similarly in verse 3. Chapter 5, verse 3, he says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And then I love what he adds, and his commandments are not burdensome. Basically, people who don't understand a a relationship with the Lord, you know, skeptics or non-believers who look at your life as a Christian, one, one of their assumptions, it's a wrong assumption, but one of their assumptions is, you know, if you have to start obeying everything the Bible says, what a killjoy. You're never going to have fun again in a a day in your life. You have to obey all these commandments, and my goodness, you know, you're you're never going to, we're never going to see you again. You're going to be stuck inside your house and and just never able to go anywhere because you got to always obey God, and, and, and God's a killjoy. That's the way a lot of people think. But I love the way that John adds there, hey, this is the love of God. To obey his commandments is the love of God. And by the way, his commandments are not burdensome. Because when you come into a relationship with the Lord and you realize that by obeying him, it goes better for you, the world has no idea the fun that we have. Because the new kind of fun that we have in Christ far outweighs the temporal kind of stuff we used to enjoy when we lived in the world. 
And if you don't understand that, it's because you're not really walking with Jesus. Because when you walk with Jesus, there is a freedom, there is a delight, there is a joy unspeakable. So his commandments are not burdensome. They are a joy. Too many people have wrecked their lives because they have been walking in disobedience to God. The people who are most fulfilled, the people who have less guilt, less shame, are able to look at themselves in the mirror and actually like themselves. I don't mean love themselves, just actually, you know, like themselves. Are people who understand what Christ has done in their hearts. And, and, and when they're right with God, when someone is right with God, there's no better place of joy than being right with God. And there's no worse place of agony than to not be right with God. And you know what I'm talking about. If you've ever been there, I'm sure you have. We all have. When we're not right with God, it is miserable. The Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. It's miserable. Oh, temporarily, on the outside, we might be having a lot of fun. But at the end of the day, you lay your head on your pillow at night and you realize when you're not right with God, it's miserable. So you can put on the plastic face all you want and pretend with your friends that you're living the, you know, you're living the life. But if you're not right with God at the end of the day, if you have any amount of self-awareness, you'll realize you're not happy because the greatest joy and contentment come in knowing the Lord and walking in his commandments. So John is refuting this, the idea that we can know God without having to do what he says. No. He adds in verse 6, here's, here's another thing he's going to refute. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. And so number four on the list is we don't have to live like Jesus. You know, that, that was one of the things they were basically saying, too. We don't have to live like Jesus, you know, just because he, you know, uh, lived a certain way. That doesn't necessarily apply to us. And, and he's refuting this. He says, no, no, we, we need to live like Jesus. That's the idea here of walking. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. The idea of walking there is to, to live, to behave, to conduct ourselves. In verse 7, he says, Brethren, I write no new commandment to you. He's going to shift here now to the idea of love. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And here in verse 9, he who says, okay, now he's going to refute another one. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light. And there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Okay, so in this next section here, he's talking about old commandment versus new commandment. And, he, and he's talking here about loving your brother, loving your sister. And so the old commandment he's referring to is Leviticus 19.18. And he says, you've had this from the beginning. Now, Leviticus 19.18 says, love your neighbor as yourself. Until Christ comes along, the highest form of love was basically self-love. So if you, you know, most people love themselves and too much. 
So you ought to be loving your neighbor just like you love yourself. Okay, that was the highest standard. Now, Jesus comes along in John 13, 34, and he says, a new commandment I give you. You've been listening to Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary is teaching through 1 John, a deep book with a simple truth front and center. We find this truth in 1 John 3.11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Did you know there's a way you can love your fellow listeners? We hope you learned something new as you listened today, and even more, that you were inspired to continue searching the Bible for God's love, truth, and grace. Would you join us in praying for your fellow listeners? With every message, there's potential for someone who desperately needs hope to hear about Jesus, and prayer is an incredible way to support them, even though you may never meet them. Or maybe today, it's you who needs prayer. We'd love to hear from you. Please send requests to prayer at ccvb.net. That's prayer at ccvb.net. Are you looking to go deeper into this study? Head over to our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc, where you'll find companion resources that are available to you completely free. Once again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all we have time for in today's message. There's more to learn, so we hope you'll join us here next time for more from Pastor Gary on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know You're not alone General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.